Welcome back to Let Christy Take It, your pop culture podcast. And this week, we're delighted to be joined by Dave Hemingway, formerly of the House Martins, formerly of the Beautiful South, and now with his new band, The Sunboards. This is Dave Hemingway. Hemingway, welcome to the Christy Take a Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And can we ask you to get started, to get the ball rolling? What was life like for young Dave Hemingway in 60s Hull? Uh, well, it was, it was idyllic, really, because I didn't know any better, really. Uh, just lived on a, I brought up on Hazel Road in Hull uh, by my mum, because uh, my dad left when I was very young. So, uh, but I didn't know any better. It was, it was good, yeah. It was, um, it was a good old working class way of being um, brought up. And uh, yeah, I didn't have a bad time at all, to be honest. And had your aspirations to get into the entertainment industry? Was there anybody in the family involved? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, I had a love of music from a, an early age. Um, well, I remember actually six years of age when I, I heard the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper. And it, even at that age, I just thought, oh, that was interesting. But, uh, yeah, my mum, my dad was um, uh, a local comedian, you know, a club comedian. And he used to play drums and play harmonica and play guitar. My mum played a bit of piano. So um, I guess, you know, I did have some sort of inkling for it, in a way. Dave, you started taking drumming lessons in school. What got you interested in the drums? Um, basically... This guy came into the class and said, does anybody want to learn drums? And I thought, well, if it gets me out of classes, then yes, I do. <laughs> so um, that was it, really. And uh, so myself and Hugh Whittaker went on to be the original drummer in the House Martins. We just started learning together, really. But I only had a, a few sort of lessons, and then I basically taught myself after that because it was a bit more the stuff that I didn't really wasn't interested in. I wasn't interested in like the um, classical way of playing drums or the intricacies and all that. So I, I wanted to be more of a, I don't know, a different sort of drummer than that. So, but yeah, that's how it happened. And you touched upon Hugh being the original drummer with the Hells Martins and No, no, I wasn't. Uh, my friend Hugh. Oh, that's what I said. Hugh, not you. Hugh. <laughs> that's the Irish oh, yeah. accent. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned Hugh. Sorry, Hugh. I should have said Hugh Whittaker. <laughs> right, okay. You mentioned Hugh Whittaker being the uh, original drummer for the House yeah, Friends. Yeah. Unfortunately, very fortunately, he, he decided to leave. Yeah. How did you get the gig? Well, it was very bizarre, really. Um, I've been, I'd always played around bands in Hull, along with Hugh. Because uh, we everyone at that time in the eighties, early eighties, always had different bands that you played in and all that, and everybody used to lend everybody else their gear and stuff like that. And Hugh obviously got into the house meetings and made it, and everyone was wow, you know, he's actually made it nationally rather than just in the whole circle. And um, then they had all this success and. 
Um, they had Caravan of Love, number one. And out of the blue, I got a phone call saying that, oh, from from Dave Rothery, who went on to be the guitarist in The Beautiful South and songwriter, he said, oh, Hugh's leaving the band and um, they want you to join. And I'm thinking, well, I thought it was a, a hoax, so a phone call, really, because that sort of thing doesn't really happen. But um, I said, yeah, okay, yeah, because they just had number one single. And um, I don't know, maybe I had a bit of a reputation for being okay as a drummer. So maybe that's why they got hold of me. But to this day, I really don't know why Hugh left as he did after they just had, you know, the top of their career, top of their success. Obviously, for me, it worked out. But um, obviously, Hugh must have had something going on. But to this day, I don't know what it was. So, yeah, I had a, I had a big break, basically. And, and, and like, unlike today, where news travels instantly, I suppose the way yeah. the band got the message across was in the video where you... Kidnap you and Floyd got overexcited. Whose idea was yeah. that? Yeah, well, obviously, um, she was in the video, and then um, it was basically, yeah, in, them, in those days, it sounds like we're talking medieval times, isn't it? But um, it was like we thought, well, in the video, to try and make the transition a bit better, because obviously the House Martins had a massive following, and to have somebody new come in, it's like, you know, trying to replace Ringo in the Beatles, really. It's not the, um, no one wants to see a new face, you know. I, I totally understand. So we thought, well, Hugh was okay with it, so we'd get him involved and he could sort of, I could sort of kidnap Hugh, put a bag over his head and drag him away and then, hey, I'm the new boy. So, like, um, that was how it was supposed to work anyway. And Fair. it was, yeah. Yeah, fair play yeah. to him being involved. I, I remember at the time seeing the video being a big House Martins yeah. fan, and like that was how we found out that he was gone and this new guy was at the coming in. It was brilliant. And what was it? Was he easy, easy enough to get involved? Or he didn't mind. For you, no. I mean, yeah. it was all very amicable. I mean, yeah. Obviously, if it hadn't have been, he wouldn't have been in the video. He was he was up for it and just said, "Yeah, I want to leave the band." I think, in a way, the band got a bit too famous for him because. It was a very um, quiet, introspective, shy sort of character because I knew him, you know, from school days. I knew him from being a kid, and uh, he was always very quiet. And uh, I think the fame thing hit him a bit um, too much. He got a bit too much for him, so he was happy to wave goodbye to that. Really, I mean, but even now, he's got such a distinctive face and that, and that is. He's still fame. He didn't. He could never get rid of the fame anyway because he's mm. still distinctive and all like that. So um, didn't really work on that count. But it was yeah, happy to say right bye bye to the house mines and I'll give him a mate a go. You know that Fair sort play. of thing. You performed on the House Martin's second album, The People Who Grin Themselves to Death, and then the band broke up. So being so new to the band only a year, how did you feel? Uh, well, like you say, I was on the second album and all that, and um, maybe I was their downfall. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I felt, 
it was mixed feelings, really. I felt really privileged to get the chance to play at the top because not many people do, not many musicians do. As you know, it's very tough to get to, uh, to succeed at, in music, to make a living at it and all like that, and to go and get on top of the pops and make good records and stuff. So I was um, really pleased to have that ambition. And I thought, well, after a year, Paul and Stan had sort of had enough of the House Martins and um, decided to call it a day. And I thought, well, hey, I've had a year. It's been great. So most people don't get that. So I was I was very happy with that. I'm thinking, well, yeah, it's a shame it didn't go on in very much longer, but um, f- for me personally, but uh, I was okay. Dave, do you remember where the house marks broke up? Um, yeah, we did. The last gigs was abroad in um, in uh, Barcelona, actually. We did uh, Madrid and Barcelona. And after the uh, the Madrid gig, we did play this massive basketball hall and Stan had made it pretty clear that I didn't want to continue anymore, you know. And Paul as well, really, because Stan just wasn't enjoying it anymore. He, he felt he'd uh, done everything he wanted to achieve. So, he, um, yeah, he didn't have the same enthusiasm for it. So um, we did this great gig. And it was, you know, all the candles in the audience and things like that, you know. Whether, and it was really nice to see. But I knew that that was going to be our last gig. So um, it was a bit a bittersweet sort of moment, really. But there you go. I was thinking, well, hey, I've had a, I've had a great year and I can't ask for more, really. So. We, um, we interviewed Stan Cullimore, one of our early, early interviews. And he told yeah. us that the, the, the final chat about the breakup was over a point after a gig in Dublin. Well, that must have might, must have been with Paul, you know, because obviously Paul and Stan were the songwriters in the House Martins, and uh, I assume that um, they'd had that conversation before the gigs, you know, sort of thing. So uh, that's fair play. I mean, it's only right that they should decide that they wanted to. Um, when they wanted to finish the house mines because they started the band. So uh, that's probably true. From the ashes of the House Martins came the beautiful South and 1989's yeah. Welcome album with the first single yeah. song for whoever with Dave Hemingway on lead vocals. So how did you feel when that became a hit? Like number two on the charts. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, pleasant surprise, really. I mean, I'd, when Paul, you know, said he's starting another band and asked me to join, I assumed, obviously, he meant as a, as a drummer, but... Um, that wasn't the case. I want me to do the some vocals. So uh, yeah, we did the album and uh, that particular song. I mean, it was a quite weird choice for a first single, to be honest, because it's quite well. It's vastly different to the House Martins for a start, and um, it's, it's a ballad and stuff like that. So I didn't expect it to be chosen for the first single, but when it did, it, yeah, it did really well. And obviously, 
the band did really well from that. So that was that was good. It's, it's amazing, like a, a song that's kind of was taking a dig at the music industry for a band's first single and for it to do so well. It kind of showed that you know I don't think you'd get that now, Dave. You wouldn't get that kind of level of politics and music. No, but then let's face it, there are lots of bands around uh, playing politics and music and saying politics, and it was. I thought it was great. You know, obviously Paul is a brilliant um, political songwriter, you know. Politics, yeah, were part of the course in the day. People like Elvis Costello, yeah. uh, Paul Weller, you know, all those people. And I, to me, it was great that you could combine music and politics in that way. Now it's a bit frowned upon. It's like, couldn't really see it happening because people are too happy to just let things I don't know. Politics is a dated word in music now, really, uh, which sadly, because it should be a, even more powerful, really. Yeah. People should be saying things in songs that um, should be said about the dire situation we're in, in politically, you know. it's. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It um, doesn't seem to be happening anymore, and uh, perhaps it should. I think, unfortunately, most people are putting their, venting their anger on Facebook posts rather than getting writing them down. They're probably losing a lot of yeah. good songs. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I'm I'm not the sort of generation, really. I, I don't get into that. I'm, I don't do social media or anything like that. But um, I'm sure it's all out there and everyone's shouting at each other on, on the social media. But maybe they should channel it into uh, making a bloody good song out of it and uh, right. see what happens then. Like, going underground, you mean? Yeah. I mean, like you see a song like Going Underground, even all these, by the jam, all these years later, it's still, you could see those lyrics and hear that song and think, it's exactly the same all yeah. these years later it still strikes a chord and it's still accurate and uh you know maybe more people should be creating songs like that to have a message which maybe gets to more people yeah and there was a bit of controversy over the the, the core of the album welcome to the beautiful sound were you involved in either controversy uh which one which the welcome to the welcome to the the the, the gun and the melt the cover yeah, the cover of yeah. the album. Yeah, what you're saying. yeah, yeah. With the gun in the mouth. Yeah, the gun in the yeah. mouth. Yeah, yeah. That was the original. Right, where something actually. The original cover had a, obviously a, a picture of a girl and a, a picture next to it with a a guy with a gun in his mouth, and um, it got taken off the shelves at various uh, shops, etc. And we so we replaced it with a picture of teddy bears and stuff like that, saying like, well, you know, you're trying to say something but they won't let you so if you want to sell records and get your music out there you've got to be all soft and cuddling which it's not the old point is it really is that you, no. if you're going to try and say something then you're not soft and cuddly it's um anyone can be that you know it's easy to be soft and cuddly and write songs which don't have a message and don't have a a point to prove but it's a lot harder to uh to write sort of political songs or even if the politics is politics of emotions like love etc it's still political in a way and um, you know I still think there's uh, room for them sort of songs absolutely just on my own I need a little time to find my freedom I need a little funny how quick the milk turns sour isn't it isn't it your face has been looking like that for hours hasn't it hasn't it Promises, promises turn to dust Wedding bells just turn to rust 
so the Beautiful South second album Choke was released in 1990 and the single A Little Time uh, great duet with yourself and Brianna Corrigan it was a number one can you remember how you felt when that got to number one so you were on a bit of a wave there yeah yeah I remember exactly it was it was very emotional yeah brilliant I mean I, I was driving back from uh, Leeds to Hull and it used to have the countdown on the radio then uh, Sunday evening uh, to seven o'clock something like that and I knew we was in the, uh, you know, in the frame to be number one. And I think Mariah, Mariah, Maria McKee, sorry, was at number one. Maria McKee was at number one with uh, uh, show, me show, me wait, show Me Heaven. Okay, you're a better than me. <laughs> um, so I, I knew she'd been there for like four weeks or whatever. And I knew we was near. But then when it came to the countdown and she was number two, I thought, well, we must be number one. Yeah, yeah. The tears did flow. You know, it was very, um, very emotional. And uh, I went to to Hull. Went to the working men's club where my mum was, and uh, walked in and got a standing ovation. And uh, it was really brilliant. And I just think, well, they can't take that away from you, really. You know, once you've had a number one, and um, I always think then you sort of and a number one because the charts are different now I don't know how it works these days or what you've got to do to or where you got to buy the records that get you to number one I suppose it's all online and all like that but then people had to actually go into a shop and buy the record and buy the CD and all that so it, it was a real achievement and I yeah I thought it was great well, which me and Kieran did you know that's, that was our Going right. to get our albums and going to get our singles weekly. Oh, great. You know? Yeah, but, brilliant. Well, you know, well then you know it's like to you know, used to, used to go into shops and buy things and have something tangible to hold. Yeah. And, you yeah. Know, was, uh, read the lyrics. Yeah. And a question we've asked really before. Yeah. Whether the youth of today are, are, are missing out on that. Like, you know, they're missing out on having that the tangible aspect of going, flicking through or oh, finding a gem of an album and going, you know. Yeah, this is mine. I well, have it. I think it's co- it's coming back a bit. The shops are there now. Vinyl yeah. shops, are, everything comes in cycles, I suppose. And uh, maybe it will get back to that. But yeah, I think they are missing out because um, part of the beauty of you know somebody you like if they put an album out, oh, what's the artwork going to be like? You know, what's yeah. the songs going to be like? What's the lyrics going to be like? And the whole package, you know, it's, it was exciting, you know. Well, they, can, they can get that these days by just going online and flicking. Yeah, you can get the lyrics to any song in the world now if you want, but it's not quite the same as if someone, a band you like, puts something out to go and buy and say, right, what have they done? You know, what have they come up with? I think Dave, it's really, really important. Dave, you'd remember, you'd remember the excitement of leaving the record shop, sitting on the bus, looking at it, not yeah. opening the cellophane until you got home and reading the cover to cover and enjoying every song, not skipping because you might scratch it. And, you know, yeah. with your education. Not only exactly. that, but finding those every album would always have a hidden gem. And I don't mean a single, but there would always be a hidden gem on an album that would be your song. What are people didn't like, you know? Yeah, well, every yeah every album had a song or two or three that um, were part of the album rather than the band sort of, well, let's have a, try and get a hit single or something. You know, it was an album. And uh, if you had some singles along the way that was a bonus but uh i always think even now you know it's good to have an album that sort of flows and um 
it goes from the first track to the last track and tells a little bit of a story, you know, put the thing together. You've got, say, 12 tracks on an album, put them in the right order so they, you know, I'm a fan of the album, let's put it yeah, that way, rather yeah. than just well, a collection of its singles. Yeah, know? 100%. Well, speaking of albums, The Beautiful South ended up having, uh, recording 10 albums. With other than yourself and Paul being the mainstays as lead vocals, you went through three female singers, Brina Corrigan, Jackie Abbott, who got great acclaim, and Alison Wheeler for the last few years. But I, I, in my opinion, I don't think Alison got the recognition that she deserved. Would you agree with that? 100%. Um, Alison, unfortunately, joined us when, at the time, we'd had great success and we were just on the downward sort of curve. We'd had the pinnacle, really, and we'd, you know, I still think we did, did some great albums, but we weren't getting the airplay or the te- uh, attention from radios, radio stations that we we used to get in and Alison joined us then. And yeah, I totally agree with you. She was very unlucky in a, in a way because uh, she was brilliant as all three of them were in their own different ways. They are different styles and different ways of doing the songs, but Alison was right up there and, uh, and she didn't unfortunately get the, the band success that we'd had previously because the band was just on a, maybe on a, a downward curve at that point in terms of, you know, uh, achieving things, selling records or getting um, in the top 40 or anything like that. So she was very unlucky, I, I, I always thought, because, uh, yeah, she's great. And I agree with you. The band, The Beautiful Tale, lasted for 19 years and yep. in some ways a lifetime in band years before yeah, split in 2007 due to musical similarities. Was the, uh, was the split amicable? Was it? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Paul, by then, I just said, okay, I, I want to do other things. And we had a meeting, uh, I think January 2007, I think it was. And um, we just sat around the table and uh, said, yeah, fair enough. Let's face it, we've had a great time, great run. We've hopefully done some good things, created some good songs. And you can't really argue with that. And uh yeah, it was perfectly amicable. And uh, to be honest, in all those years, I can think of, you know, on the fingers of one hand, really, how many arguments we actually had. And that doesn't happen very often in a band. So um, I think that's why we lasted so long, because uh, we didn't really argue. We just had a good time, good laugh. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was brilliant. The press release, musical similarities? Yeah, well, that's obviously a piss take, isn't it? It's, uh, most people... <laughs> Um, split because they're different but we would to alike <laughs> I have to say I really recommend uh, the book uh, Last Orders at the Lawyer's Bar I read it a few months ago it's a real fly in the wall kind of a documentary in the book about the beautiful south and the whole tour yeah. really good I'm just listening when I try and pick it up I love that but uh, after the band breakup you continued to band as the south and then you called it a day in 2016 did you yeah. feel yourself you needed a break? I definitely needed a break yeah I was Totally bent out. I was, yeah, I was on my last legs, really. Uh, I wasn't very healthy, drinking too much, things like that. And, um, yeah, I, I just thought I didn't really want to be in the band anymore because um, I felt as if it was like a, a sort of tribute band. But I don't mean that in a bad way. There's a lot to be said for tribute bands. 
but I didn't want to be in a tribute band to myself sort of thing. You know, it was like, um, I still felt that, you know, even though I'm knocking on a bit, I thought I still want to do some new songs and uh, I've still got another album or two in me to do some new stuff. So I didn't want to just keep going on the treadmill of playing Beautiful South songs. And uh, obviously with my health not being so good as well at the time. So um, I uh, thought that was the best time, time to sort of stand back from that. And Dave, you're back now, well fed and rested with your new band, The Sunboards. Yeah. And the album, yeah. Kill to Be Kind. Is it good to be back? Yeah, I feel uh, re energized, really. It's like, in a way, it's like starting a band again, you know, what well, it is, starting a band again. Um, I was waiting for the right songs to come along, and Phil, the guitarist from the South, he came along with the songs, and I thought they were really good. And I thought, yeah, this is sort of time to. Uh, I'd had some time out and I thought, why not sort of go again and see where this leads? And um, we're really pleased with the album. We did everything ourselves, down to the artwork, to the everything. You know, we don't have a record company. So it was hard work. But then again, I'm pleased with it. I think we can be proud of it. It's a good album, in my opinion. And um, we're just looking out to getting... Um, when we can to get in some gigs together and uh, hopefully next year starting from February we yeah. can get out there again uh, we've only done uh, well two gigs at the moment sort of behind closed doors really but uh, and we're looking, hoping to get out there and do some proper gigs next year and you mentioned Phil came to, how did the band come together like how did you get the rest of the players was it did you just uh, well I mean Phil got together with the songs and then it was a question of um, how do we want to proceed? How do we want to sound, really? What's the sound of the band? And uh, so we'll try and go a different way. So we, um, we thought we wanted violin. So we got Laura uh, Wilcoxon, who, who played in a support band to the south. So we knew Laura. So we got her on board. Uh, Phil knew a Mark, who was a drummer. And um, he um, he came on board. So that was the four of us. Then, and that is the band at the moment, just the four of us. But obviously we've got other people like, um, who was keen on getting pedal steel on the album and, uh, you know, just a bit of different sounds, a bit of an Americana sort of sound really. And uh, hopefully we've achieved that. And uh, obviously when we go out, we might just go out as a four piece, but we might go out as a, with a few more people as well, you know, on different instruments. So we'll see what happens. It's a pretty witty album. I listened to a uh, couple of the songs over there. Quite witty lyrics, well written. Yeah, well, you know, Phil's the main songwriter on the album and all that. And uh, I think a big thing about, another thing about coming back with a new band, it had to be, there had to be decent songs because having worked, you know, with Paul and uh, House Martin's Beautiful South, I think everything, everyone will always agree that one of the big strengths of the band was the songwriting and the the quality of the songs. And uh, to come back with a new band, Sunbirds, with a collection of, you know, songs that weren't so good would be mm. 
just not on really. They had to be of a certain standard, otherwise there'd be no point because uh, I'm used to good songs, you know, basically in the bands I've been in. And though not, I'm not much of a writer myself, but I know what a good song is, you know. And um, I think we've done that with this album, so the songs you can be proud of. And I always think it's very important uh, to have the quality of song because otherwise... Um, then uh, it doesn't sound so good, does it? And I'll meet you on the north side Where the diamonds shine in the mud And the slowly rolling river Is forever in my blood um, we, we did notice you've got a co-writing credit on Meet You on the North Side. Yeah, that's, be- that's because... Um, yeah, sorry, go on. No, I was going to ask you: Is 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 songwriting something that you'd you'd like to focus on for the next album? Maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, that particular song was because it was because it was of my uh, it was about my growing up in the sixties in Hull as a kid, and so I knew about you know the, the different locations, the different uh, the way Hull was at the time with the trawlers and the trawlermen and the pubs, etc. So that came easy. I mean, yeah, I'd like to focus a bit, perhaps on songwriting a bit more. But um, having worked with such great songwriters, you know, um, you think, well, if, if I'm not up to scratch, then I won't put myself out there because there's no point. Because let the people who can do it, do it. If they do it better than me, then so be it. So like, uh, I'll be happy just to sing the songs or play along with the songs. And, and that's fine by me. You know, I've, I've got no problem with that. Um, you indicated that you've done some behind closed doors gigs. Yeah. Are, are, are you looking forward to the, the reaction from a crowd again? I mean, we, we, me, Steph and Karen have seen you both play massive gigs, yeah. singing the songs back to you. I've sang songs back to you, trust me, many a night. Right. Um, are you looking forward to getting that feedback from a crowd again? Yeah, well, we played a couple of gigs, at, you know, just a little pub and we played a little club in Hull. And uh, they went well, you know. So it it's shown to me that yeah, we can we can play, which is um, is important really because uh, we were sort of a bit up in the air, thinking, well, can we do this? And uh, it turns out they went well, and I think yeah, we can do that. Obviously, we're not going to be playing at the same massive level that Beautiful South was or House Martins or anything like that. But I think we can play some honest sort of down-to-earth, grassroots sort of venues, which is great as well. So uh, we'll be looking to do that and doing a, a pretty, get a pretty big tour together when that's possible. And we've got uh, some gigs in February, which are sort of proper gigs. We've got a gig in London on the 18th of October, I think it is. Um, so there'll be our proper gigs, our first proper gigs, I suppose. Um, but we're looking to go out there and, get the music around and sort of, yeah, have a good time because uh, that's what it's about, I suppose. And uh, now I'm, I've got my sort of mojo back a bit and uh, I'm up for it. And uh, I wasn't up for it really when, you know, as I say, with the, when the South ended for me, I just, I'd lost my will to do it. But um, now I'm sort of, I am up for it. So let's see what happens. And is it, would a trip to Dublin be on the cards for a trip to Dublin is always on the cast <laughs> in anybody's itinerary anywhere. 
<laughs> let us know. Let us right. know. Oh, yeah, without, without a doubt. <laughs> Dave, looking back over your career, uh, what's been the standout <laughs> moment for you? Well, I'd have to say the number one. Um, achieving that meant a hell of a lot to me. You know, it was just... Because yeah, I just thought, well, you know, they can't take that away from you ever. But um, and gig-wise, playing Glastonbury with Beautiful South, uh, second on to REM, 99, on the main stage... Again, that was just like one of the moments you, you think to yourself, what am I doing here? You know, I'm so fortunate to be here and doing this. And um, I never lose sight of that. You know, there's a lot of people out there, a lot better than me, who don't get the chance to do that. And uh, I was in the right place at the right time, in the right band. And uh, it was just moments like that. that just make you think, well, yeah, you're a lucky person. But there you go. Magic. But you know what? I was going to ask you a question there. Uh, what song do you love to perform? But I just want to leave you a little. I don't know if you've seen the Foo Fighters version of uh, You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees. Uh, yeah. But I've seen the better version. I've seen the beautiful South Plains. Yeah, we have seen we used to do that. In, in, where, in, where have you seen that? In Fela in 1992, a festival in Ireland, and it blew me away. <laughs> it's still my favourite version of it. Yeah, I remember doing that. We had a lot of fun doing that. Um, because it's got, we had the own section at the time. And yeah. That was, a, I enjoyed that. Yeah, we, try, we did that. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. It was a really good time. Uh, good fun song to do that. That was expected of us, really, but yeah, it was good. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Dave Hemingway, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Let Christy take hey, it. Thanks for having me. Before you go, we have yep. a question we ask all our musical guests, well, all our guests, really. And the question yep. is it's last orders at the bar. Yeah. The last chance saloon. You have a pound in your pocket. Yep. And you get to play one right. song. What's the last song Dave Hemingway ever plays? <laughs> right. Am I going to die or anything? Or well, we need to This is, this is up to you. <laughs> right. I'm not, I don't want to die. Not it depends how heavy the night was. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I'm going to go with a, a love song, really, because I think uh, love makes the world go around. Or oh, it should do. Sadly, that's not always the case. Well, it's not the case at the moment, is it? But... Uh, <laughs> You know, in an ideal world, I think you've got to go up with a love song. I'm going to go up with a... I've always been a fan of the Beatles, obviously. They, I grew up with the Beatles. And um, I thought... I was going to think about uh, maybe Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever. But that's a, a cop-out, really, because one's John Lennon, one's Paul McCartney. So I thought, I won't do that. I'll go um, with the Beach Boys. Uh, I'm going to go God Only Knows. So I think that's a beautiful... Love song, and it's um, you know, love songs are brilliant, frankly. and probably the best song ever written, if I'm, yeah. in my own opinion. Right? And Paul McCartney's favorite, so you're killing two boards at once. Yeah. It's a pleasure, Dave. Thanks very much. Thank you. The world could show nothing to me, so what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you